From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's the U.S.'s longest war, and from its earliest days, the fight in Afghanistan lacked direction, says this Colorado veteran. Essentially, throw in a cookie-cutter democracy in a tribal system. Tyler Wilson of Golden reflects on revelations this month that U.S. officials lied about the war's progress. Wilson was paralyzed in a firefight. Then, the kind of news that upends families' lives. Terrible shock for some Coloradans, as they are learning their fathers are not who they thought. How the case of a Colorado fertility doctor, accused of using his own sperm in patients, parallels one in Indiana. There was no turning back at that point. I'm looking at my biological father. I I knew instantly, without a doubt. Plus, rock and roll Hall of Famer Nils Lofgren. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The war in Afghanistan is the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. It's been waged since 2001. And a staggering report from The Washington Post earlier this month alleges U.S. officials misled the public, quoting here, making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence the war had become unwinnable. Tyler Wilson of Golden has read the report. He's had some time to let it sink in. Wilson was deployed to Afghanistan and paralyzed in 2005 from the waist down in a firefight. And Tyler, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Now that you've had some time to let these facts sink in, what sticks out to you? Um, When the first parts of the report came out and I, I was reading through some of it and friends of mine that I served with and some of the stuff we'd known for a long time, it's, for me personally, doesn't really come as too, too much of a shock. When I was there in 2005, the strategy wasn't really told to us of what you know the end game is going to be. And it was just kind of a, almost a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants strategy from the get-go. So is it that you didn't feel you had a, a clear mission or a goal? Yeah, that would definitely be a good way to put it. I mean, it's... When I was there, it was just kind of, we're there to uh, provide security for the forces in the area and, you know, support some of the projects that were going on, some of the infrastructure projects. And there wasn't any kind of strategy to talk to us about long-term goals and things like that. Do you remember feeling frustrated by that at the time? It wasn't necessarily too frustrating at the time because it was fairly early on in the conflict. And uh, you know, we had no idea that this many years later that friends of mine that I serve with are still going on rotations over there. Um, Some of these guys are towards the end of their careers approaching double-digit deployments in the same areas. Pretty unheard of in history. Are you angry? I wouldn't call myself angry with this report at all. Any of us that signed up, especially post 9-11, kind of know what you're getting yourself into. You know, you might feel a little misled, but I mean, that's kind of the, the politics of DC and you know, politics in the military in general anyway. It's unfortunately part of the game, whether it's this conflict or any other conflict. It's happened throughout history. This is fascinating to me, Tyler. Are you saying that as a soldier, to some extent, you knew you wouldn't always get a clear picture from the top brass? I would definitely agree with that, that especially a boots-on-the-ground soldier is you know, never going to get every single detail of what the overall operation is going to be. I mean, just the day I was wounded is a prime example. I, it wasn't until a couple of years later that I 
learned all the details of everything that went on. Um, it's, it's politics. What do you remember about the day you were injured? The day I was wounded, it was, we were a quick reaction force for a group of scouts that were ambushed in a remote river valley. Um, Help me understand that. In other words, you were providing a kind of security for others operating. Uh, a group of our scouts from our battalion, they were on a patrol in the area, and they were ambushed, and they called for our help to uh, fly in, help get them out, and uh, essentially they had ticked over the hornet's nest, and it was a team of six guys in two Humvees, and they came upon essentially a, a Taliban camp of about 150 Taliban fighters. So we flew in on Chinooks and took fire as soon as we got over the, the village landed, cordoned off the area, called in air support and things like that. And it was a quite an intense and prolonged firefight that lasted in all a couple of days. Wow. But I was wounded in, uh, on the first day. I was on a heavy machine gun team on a, uh, a hillside that was cutting off the enemy's escape route. And they shot down on us. And when my myself and my gunner, we realized we were in a, a very bad spot and we were picking our, ourselves up to move to better cover. And that's when I got hit between my uh, bulletproof plates. That's what paralyzed me from the waist down. Right off the bat, it was like the light switch was flipped and another volley around came down. And that's when I got hit three more times. And uh, I was in pretty dire straits at that time. And fortunately, we had a special forces team operating with us and, and their medic worked on me before the medevac got there and then loaded me up and that was that for my military career. I think what you told us there is you knew pretty instantaneously that you had lost movement below mm -hmm. the waist. Yeah, it was instantly everything from about the belly button down. I, I couldn't feel. Do you believe in the war in Afghanistan? Um, I believe in uh, the purpose when we, went, when we went there after 9-11 to get the individuals that uh, perpetrated the attack and fight the individuals that were supporting them. But the, uh, the problem came past that. It was, from my perspective, is trying to essentially throw in a, a cookie-cutter democracy in especially a tribal system. Hmm. It, anytime we went up these remote river valleys and stuff, uh, these remote villages, they didn't care about a national government in Kabul. Um, when my unit went into uh, the Corngall Valley during the next deployment, you know, friends of mine had told me that when they went into some of these areas that Americans had never been in, that these Afghani villagers essentially thought it was the Russians coming back because they knew nothing of really what was going on. I want to note that you ended up marrying a woman uh, who was your physical therapist. This is Crystal. Do I have that right? Yes. And you and Crystal have two sons now. Correct. How would you feel if they decided to join the military? How, how old are they, first off, Tyler? My sons are very young. They're two and a half and just four months. Okay, so this, I realize, is a premature question, but uh, how would you feel if they decided to join the military? Crystal and I have both talked about this already, just with my experiences, and we're both on the side of we'll support whatever they want to do, but they will know the reality of the situation and it won't be sugarcoated. It's not going to be, you know, just seeing the recruiting posters and, and whatnot. They're, they're going to know 
what the real deal is and what it's really like to join. Are you glad you served? Joining the military was always something I wanted to do. and I was originally planning to do college and ROTC and do the officer route, but after 9-11, I decided to enlist. And sure, there's times that you kind of regret being so traumatically wounded. What would my life have been like? But joining the military and being traumatically wounded and nearly dying in service has led me all these years later. I wouldn't have the wife and kids. And, you know, I wouldn't have the family that I do now. So I definitely don't regret whether it's with these reports coming out or whatever. I mean, it's, there's nothing I can change. Well, thanks so much for your time, Tyler. Absolutely. Afghanistan veteran Tyler Wilson on the line there. He lives in Golden and served in the U.S. Army's 173rd Airborne Brigade. Wilson was paralyzed from the waist down in combat. He was reflecting there on that eye-opening report in the Washington Post earlier this month, the Afghanistan Papers. The Pentagon says there was no intent to mislead Congress or the public about the war's progress. It's a disturbing story that not surprisingly drew headlines. Terrible shock for some Coloradans as they are learning their fathers are not who they thought. The case is growing against a Grand Junction fertility doctor accused of using his own sperm to impregnate patients. Dr. Paul Jones already faces a lawsuit from more than a dozen people. They include women who were his patients and those who claim to be his biological children. Well, now a second suit is in the works making similar claims. Here is Denver attorney Paula Grison. What does it say that a doctor would violate that trust in a very, very private and personal and life-changing way? Does it make the client trust or not trust any future doctors? So how might this case unfold? Well, we can consider a similar one in Indiana. Reporters Jake Harper and Lauren Bavis tell that story in their podcast, Sick, from NPR member station WFYI in Indianapolis. And Jake, Lauren, welcome to our show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Okay, here in Colorado, Dr. Paul Jones, who's now 80, recently gave up his medical license. He won't comment on his guilt or innocence. Uh, Jake, how does this case compare to the one you followed in Indiana involving Dr. Donald Klein? I mean, I think it seems pretty similar in a lot of ways. I mean, Klein uh, is in his 80s now. He was in practice around the same time in the 70s and 80s as it became known through consumer DNA testing. Um, A lot of people have discovered that Klein is their biological father because he used his own semen to impregnate their mothers in in these artificial insemination procedures. Right. The rise of do-it-yourself uh, you know, genetic information really helps open a lot of these cases. In your podcast, you interview a mother named Liz White, who tried and tried to have a child. Eventually, she and her husband discovered that he was infertile. And so she went in to see Dr. Klein. He sat on one side of his desk and we're sitting on the opposite side of that desk. I remember... Uh, tearing up, talking about our trial of trying to be pregnant. And I remember just trying to keep my tears, holding back on my tears of the sadness I felt. This was in the late 1970s. Dr. Klein used artificial insemination and said the sperm donors were 
anonymous medical students. Eventually, Liz White gets pregnant. Was there any hint that Dr. Klein was using his own sperm, Lauren? Yeah, I I mean, she seemed totally shocked when this came to light um, in in 2016. Uh, She talked about just the ultimate trust that people put into doctors, and that was something we heard over and over, uh, both from the people who discovered that Klein was their biological father to other people who in the medical community we talked to for the show, just the trust that you put in a doctor when you're in this very vulnerable situation. Like you said, Klein said that he would find medical residents at the hospital that was across the street from his office to be donors. It didn't really occur to any of the women who we talked to who were Klein's patients that that was out of the ordinary. And we asked other doctors who practiced around the time, and they said that that too was the the general way things were done. It wasn't at all like today where, you know, you have a very specific way that you can pick a sperm donor if that's the way that you choose to get pregnant. Ah, uh, Jake, how wide is the scope of the case in Indiana? How many people are we talking about affected? So the most recent figure that we've heard from the siblings uh, is that there are 70 confirmed. And I believe that number includes Klein's four kids that he had with his wife. So, I mean, we're talking about dozens of patients over, I believe, a 15-year period that he was using his own semen. Wow. Is there a sense that it could be even bigger than that? Talking to the siblings, it seems likely, I think, around around the holidays and whenever there's a sale on 23andMe or other consumer genetic tests, mm-hmm. uh, they kind of expect to see new siblings come in and, and show up on those sites. Okay. In your first episode, in addition to Liz White, who we heard from earlier, you also interview her son, Matt. He knew his mother had used a sperm donor and had used a particular clinic, but it wasn't until he saw an article in the newspaper with accusations against Dr. Klein and a photo of Dr. Klein that the truth hit him. There was no turning back at that point. It was just like, okay, then... I'm looking at my biological father. Um, I, I knew instantly, without a doubt. Instantly, without a doubt. Jake, you've seen the photos of each of them. How striking is the resemblance? Oh, man. I mean, they look a lot alike. I mean, the one the one major difference that you can see now is that Klein is now bald. But their eyes, their the way that their faces are shaped, I mean, they're very um, similar looking. And they're both very tall as well. So he didn't feel like he needed genetic confirmation to know that this was the case, that this doctor was his father. No, he he knew right away and started talking about it with his mom to sort of figure out the next steps. And then one of those next steps did include a, a DNA test, which obviously confirmed what he suspected. Lauren, we understand in the podcast that Liz White was making cash payments for the treatments I think what I'm most eager to have you shed light on is what the motivations might be for these doctors. Again, here in Colorado, Dr. Paul Jones. What what do you know about Dr. Klein's motivations in Indiana and what that might tell us about the Colorado case? You know, I think your guess might be uh, as as good as mine. We, uh, you know, just like Dr. Jones, uh, Dr. Klein has pretty much generally not given interviews to media. You know, he, he spoke in court and a little bit about, you know, apologizing to his family about what came to light. But when it comes to the actual motivation for this, it's mostly we've asked people to speculate. I don't know if it, you know, like you said, some people brought in cash payments for donors, if it had to do with money and keeping 
the funds that otherwise would have been given to donors. Right. Um, if it was, you know, ease and convenience back then, organizing these sperm donors, you had to do it pretty quickly because sperm outside the body dies very quickly. So it was tricky to make sure that you had someone lined up who could donate and that the patient would get to the exam room to be inseminated. And then, you know, the siblings talked to us too about if there are really kind of dark factors involved, if it was sexual, if, if you know, Klein had a God complex, but I couldn't say exactly what it is. It's only something that the doctors themselves could share. Yeah. The God complex had occurred to me in listening to the podcast. Was this an egomaniacal doctor? It seems to me that in Colorado, Dr. Jones and in Indiana, Dr. Klein, they just didn't anticipate the 23 and me and, and, you know, how widely available this information would become for consumers. Yeah, I I don't know how they could have possibly seen that coming. It seems kind of futuristic almost. Um, And, you know, reading about the case in Grand Junction, it it seems like the way that the siblings came about this information was pretty similar. People are doing these tests for fun to see what the, you know, health information they might be able to glean, or they're really kind of into the genealogy aspect of it, and they have no idea that a giant secret could come to light. It's really hard to hear these examples of people who are a lot of times even finding out two secrets at once, sometimes finding out that the the men that they grew up with aren't, you know, their biological fathers. And then on top of that, their biological father is someone who potentially deceived, you know, their parents. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Right. And these kits are billed as so fun, right? You learn, oh, I've always thought I was Greek. I'm actually German. But there can be really painful information that surfaces. Okay. You mentioned the siblings. I'm very curious. Uh, By the way, we're speaking with Lauren Bavis and Jake Harper. They're reporters at WFYI in Indianapolis and producers of a podcast called Sick. They looked into a case of a doctor in Indiana who impregnated women using his own sperm. We're speaking to them because there's a very similar case in Grand Junction involving a man named Dr. Paul Jones. Um, I am glad you mentioned the siblings. I'm very curious, what is the relationship beyond involvement, you know, in a lawsuit among the siblings? Are they close? Are they in an uncomfortable kind of truce? How would you describe it, Jake? I mean, it's kind of, if you picture a large family, I think that's kind of what it's like. Some people talk to each other all the time. Some people don't. Some siblings are just closer than than others. And we should say, too, that some of the siblings that have sort of found this information out through genetic testing have decided they don't want anything to do with this story. They don't want to talk to the siblings. They don't want to talk to the media. And so we we weren't able to talk to any of those folks. But then the ones that we have spoken to are sort of pretty involved in the group. And they talk to each other through various channels pretty regularly. They Occasionally, they'll get together for a sort of a potluck or a, a pitch-in um, barbecue kind of thing. But um, I, I think it really depends on which sibling you're talking to. Yeah. Some of them are they, – they do struggle with this idea that they're half-siblings and what that means. Are, are they siblings? Are they just acquaintances with shared DNA? Um, and then others are – you know, saw pictures of each other and thought, that's my sister without even really knowing. So I, I think it just depends on who you talk to. Lauren, how in general do they perceive their biological father? Uh, that depends, too, on on the kind of contact that they've had with him. Some of the original siblings, the first ones who found out that they were related through these genetic tests and then went on sort of a DNA uh, mystery to try to solve who their biological father could be, you know, as we detail in the podcast, ended up actually getting to meet with Klein in person and, and asking him some questions. Right. But since then, I mean, 
most of the, the larger group of people who have found out haven't really had any interaction with him. Some of them, you know, went to see him in court. But yeah, a lot of them, they, they don't really want any relationship. They recognize that, you know, the, the people who've been in their lives, their whole lives, their mom and dad, that's who their mom and dad are. And that's the relationship they want to maintain. How likely is it that these half-siblings could potentially couple if, if they didn't know that they were in this group, have children of their own with all the genetic repercussions that that might entail? I think it's complicated. I, I think going into this, I kind of thought, uh, that's not likely. I, I can see why people would talk about that as an issue. But I kind of didn't think it was something that really needed to be worried about, given how big Indianapolis is. Um, but, you know, talking with them, there are some pretty, I'm not sure if eerie is the right word, but they're, they're, some of the siblings have come very close to knowing each other from different experiences. Their kids play on the same sports team or go to the same school. Two of them were our neighbors. And I, I believe some of them did sort of at least know of each other before they actually found this out. Wow. Um, and so it seems far-fetched, but not impossible. Let's wrap up with the, the legal landscape here. So, Lauren, my understanding is that this was not expressly illegal in many states, maybe even in Indiana. What is the landscape here, briefly? Yeah, uh, before this year, it wasn't illegal in Indiana, um, and it's not illegal in most states. As of this year now, California, Texas, and Indiana have laws on the books um, that are, you know, so-called fertility fraud-related laws that make it explicitly a crime for a doctor to inseminate a patient with his own sperm. Um, and there's still no law on a national scale. So I, I've seen, you know, some news reports in Colorado of uh, representatives who are thinking about bringing this into legislation. And it's difficult. It's hard because even if it is made illegal tomorrow, that might not have any impact on what happened decades ago, which is the, what was the case in Indiana is moving forward. This is illegal, but it can't, you know, retroactively affect things that happened in the 70s and 80s. Right. Um, we're, we're talking about cases that are 40, 50 years old. That's Lauren Bavis. And we heard from Jake Harper as well. They're reporters at WFYI in Indianapolis, which produces their podcast, Sick, along with Side Effects Public Media and PRX. Season one is about a doctor in Indianapolis who impregnated women using his own sperm. A similar case involving Dr. Paul Jones in Grand Junction is now under investigation. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a man whose first big break came from Neil Young. Fifty years later, guitarist Nils Lofgren reunites with his oldest musical family in a Telluride studio. There's something about that open space and the clean air, all beautiful wood studio. And of course, you know, the crux of it all, 50-year-old friends and great musicians that I've gotten to work with on and off through the decades. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwill, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you.
You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I have to be honest, I wasn't sure where to start my interview earlier this year with guitarist Nils Lofgren. I mean, he's a rock and roll Hall of Famer, Springsteen bandmate, a crazy horse for Neil Young, friend to the late Tom Petty and Lou Reed. But we settled on starting with Colorado. That's the name of the new Neil Young and Crazy Horse album recorded at Studio in the Clouds near Telluride. Here's the conversation with Lofgren from October. It's a 2019 favorite. Nils, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. How do you feel about Colorado? I'm going to let you answer whether that's the album or the state you respond to. Well, they both mean a lot to me. My wife, Amy who is from West Orange, New Jersey, originally settled in Colorado as a professional cook in Boulder, in Georgetown, Denver. And probably about, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago, we started going to Telluride from Scottsdale, where I live now with Amy. Um, She took skiing lessons and became a great skier. I'm still a very average beginner snowboarder. (laughs) But we started going yearly for about 15 years, actually, up to Telluride. We fell in love with the town and the people. So uh, going back to Telluride to record a record with pretty much my oldest musical family, uh, Neil and Crazy Horse, who I walked in on oh, 50 years ago this last May at the yeah. cellar door on their first tour. So I have a lot of fond memories of Telluride as a town, it was great to go back there for a couple of weeks to work on this uh, new album, Colorado. Yeah, to Studio in the Clouds, located on 90 acres near Telluride. How does a space like that inspire during the recording process? Like, I wonder if this album would have worked if it had been made in Hollywood or New York. Well, of course, with my <laughs> understandable prejudice being in the band... I think it would have worked anywhere, but I think it worked best uh, and brought a comfort level, certainly to Neil, because he just took a drive from him and Daryl's home to the studio. And in general, the the setting, uh, the studio literally in the clouds, uh, the beautiful scenery, the mountains of Colorado, the big herds of animals coming across the street, beautiful sunsets. I forget it was called a pink moon or something, but there was... No matter what we were doing, we'd usually stop and go out for 20 minutes and just watch the sunset, watch the moon come up. There's something about that open space and the clean air, all beautiful wood studio, a lot of ancient instruments everywhere. Mm. And of course, you know, the crux of it all, 50-year-old friends and great musicians that I've gotten to work with on and off through the decades. We heard the warning calls, ignored them. Watched the weather change, we saw the fires and floods, we saw the people rise, dividing, we fought each other while we lost our coveted pride. There's so much we did. Green is Blue, which I think is just a haunting, gorgeous song about climate change, 
Certainly we recorded Colorado in a beautiful, pristine part of the country where there is clean air and there still is nature and beauty. But uh, it's sadly disappearing on the planet. And of course, Daryl Hannah, Neil's wife, and Neil are very active and have been for decades in being champions for climate change and just, you know, the rights of animals, plants, life, trees, all the good things that we're destroying. And uh, I think Green is Blue is one of the great pieces I've ever heard to speak to that. We watch the species die. We saw the coral turning, we watched the oceans rise. We saw the pot of whales lay bloated on the shore where they baked, but we missed that sign. We saw the polar bear, she floated on a piece of ice from another time. I just want to pick up on something you said a bit earlier that Neil Young and Crazy Horse feel like a musical family to you. You know, families get along, families fight. How is that family relationship? Well, for me, it's it's just been a beautiful on and off ride for over 50 years. I was 17 and freshly on the road uh, with my band Grin in 1968, not knowing what I was doing. I would sneak backstage a lot and ask for advice. I went to see Neil Young and Crazy Horse on their very first tour. I walked in on their dressing room at the cellar door. The cellar door in Washington, D.C. Right. And uh, they were doing a run of shows there. Fortunately, Neil handed me a guitar, let me sing some songs I'd written for the first Grin record, and he liked them. And to my surprise, he uh, said, why don't you hang out with us for a couple days? Got me a cheeseburger and a Coke and a table to watch four great shows over two nights. And it's led to a lot of chapters in the last 50 years I've been really, you know, grateful to be part of. You know, hearing you tell that story, it makes me think that such a thing is so much less likely to happen today. Do you think that's true? In some respects, I do think it's true. Back then, it was kind of the Wild West of early rock and roll. There were dressing room doors that were guarded by a bouncer at all times. And there was no video. uh, There was no internet. There were no cell phones. So there was more of a human touch and human contact. I can't say it could never happen for a young person, but I I think I was blessed in that time as the music business was exploding with the renaissance of the 60s and in every way and every genre. There was less of a formality to it all be harder to see that happening in this day and age. Now, with the release of Colorado, there is also a kind of making of film that goes along with it. It's called Mountaintop. I want it up as loud as it can go without feeding. I want to hear the thing. Neil has promoted it on social media saying, it's a wild one, folks. No holds barred. You'll see the whole process just as it went down, warts and all. I'm very curious, Nils Lofgren, about the warts. Well, I I had a conversation uh, last week uh, with Neil about that, and he was lamenting. <laughs> uh, first of all, he wanted people to see what actually happened, not polish it all up nice and smooth, which has been Neil from the day I met him, very honest and sincere. Now, I have not seen the movie. I've seen the trailer. But as he put it to me personally, he said, um, 
you know, I'm kind of a jerk a lot of the times. He was kind of amazed. And, and all the years I've worked with Neil, I never saw it that way. I just saw it as an impatience where you, you know, you show up with these great songs, you show up, the singer's ready, you have the band, and then you run into obstacles, whether it's, we tried to record live where Neil sang through a PA and we all played in the room, everything was leaking into each other. Huh. Most of the times we tried not to use headsets just like playing in a bar through a PA. But, you know, logistically, that's not that easy song to song to set up. So sometimes we'd all get impatient. And uh, I guess Neil, warts and all, what he means is you're going to see the impatience and the frustrations and realize it's just not all fun and games. Turn this thing off. If this is all you can do, I don't need it. No, no, yeah, uh, this is one time when I want you guys to just go bang and we're doing it. Doing okay? it right on Neil's vocal mic. Check. One, two. Louder. There's a rainbow of colors in the old USA. No one's gonna watch. The sound of it is like family. It's like listening to family make music together. It's intimate. It's interactive. I think of one of my favorite tracks on the new album, Colorado. It's called Eternity. Uh, Sounds like you're having some fun uh, as you listen to this song. Why don't you set it up for us? Well, Eternity, uh, we were talking about the demos and Eternity came up and I mentioned that uh, it's a very happy song and hopeful and Neil gets to this chorus where he goes clickety-clack, clickety-clack, talking about a train going over some rickety train tracks. And um, 10 years ago, I had both hips replaced, too much basketball and you know trampoline and craziness on stage. So I picked up tap dancing and I just commented at the dinner table, yeah, every time I heard the demo for Eternity and I get to the clickety-clack part, I'd jump out of my seat and start tap dancing. And we all had a laugh (laughs) about it. But I just offhandedly mentioned, yeah, I I brought my tap board. So the next day we're in uh, the studio and everyone's like, what do you want to do, Neil? And he said, tell you what, we're going to do Eternity and uh, get Nils ready, he's going to be tap dancing. And the look on the engineers' faces was priceless because they've done a lot of sessions with Neil, but I think this might have been the first time where someone in the band was setting up to do a tap dancing part. (laughs) And it was quite hilarious and just indicative of the freedom of expression Neil has and the wide open, like, hey, whatever's happening or you feel at the time, let's go for it and not think about it. So uh, I got to do, you know, I've waited 50 years, but I finally got to do a tap dancing session on a Neil Young record, and it was worth the wait. Woke up this morning in a house of love, oh, fortunate me, I hope we're living in a house of love for eternity. Nils Ofgren, what is an example of the behavior on stage you did as a younger man that led to your hip problems? 
Well, way back, uh, I hit the road in 1968, and we opened for every band under the sun. Grin played everywhere with everyone, and I didn't have much. I wasn't much of a performer the first couple years. I just closed my eyes and concentrate on playing and singing. Anyway, I went to my. I was a gymnast in junior high. I went to my old gymnastic teacher, and asked him to help me learn to do a backflip while I play the guitar on a little mini tramp. And he taught me how to do it because when you're holding a guitar, it removes your upper body, which you use to throw your arms back for the torque. Anyway, I started doing it in the show and it was an enormous visual hit and people loved it. And it's just something, you know, I came up with early on. So even after I started being uninhibited and jumping around and dancing a lot, I would keep that in the show. And it was a great bit, lasted a long time. I fell a bit, got bruised up, but fortunately, I never went to the hospital behind it. And that's kind of how it started, thanks wow. to my old gymnastic teacher. So I want to do a bit of a flip myself um, and talk about your other new project. This year, you also released a solo record called Blue with Lou, which features some songs that you co-wrote with the late Lou Reed. Why did you decide to revisit the material? Well, years ago, Lou and I had written 13 songs together, and he immediately used three of them on the Bells record. I used three and put out two subsequently with Lou's blessing. And of course, I always thought the others that no one ever heard, maybe Lou and I would look at together someday, and sadly, we lost Lou. And once Lou had passed, I realized that next time I made a record, I really just couldn't leave the unheard songs sitting in the in the basement if you will i needed to get them out and arrange them and get them on a new record to share because it was a very special collaboration Let's rejoin the conversation with guitarist Nils Lofgren. He's on the new album, Colorado, from Neil Young and Crazy Horse. They recorded it earlier this year at Studio in the Clouds near Telluride, elevation 9000. The album and companion documentary are out now. Lofgren also released a new solo record this year, Blue with Lou, which includes some songs he co-wrote with the late Lou Reed. Nils Lofgren is celebrating 50 years in music a career that really started when Neil Young gave him his first big break, inviting a teenaged Lofgren to sit in on the recording of After the Gold Rush. Lofgren calls Neil Young and Crazy Horse his oldest musical family. But it's Lofgren's work with a different band that he may be best known for. So I just had to ask him about his other boss, the boss. You joined the E Street Band in 1984 as Bruce Springsteen was hitting superstardom with the success of Born in the USA. I'm curious how you'd compare and contrast Neil and Bruce as like band leaders. Well, interestingly enough, there's a lot of a lot more similarities between Neil and Bruce than there are differences. Other than, of course, the sound of their guitar playing and their voices, you know, you've got two of our greatest writers in history, and they both really 
give the bands freedom. They surround themselves with musicians that they trust, that understand their music. So they give you a freedom. A lot of times, you know, they won't even suggest an instrument. They'll just let you pick up what you're hearing and want to hear your input first. It's just a natural feel with both of them that you get that uh, there's plenty of room for being loose and being a little reckless. In fact, they kind of prefer that. And in general, neither one of them really like the over-rehearsed, over-produced stuff, although they've both done some beautiful, you know, very precise production. In general, when they're playing live and, and even in the studio, uh, they're looking for something more immediate and emotional. Nils Lofgren, who would win in a battle of the bands, Crazy Horse or E Street Band? Ah. <laughs> oh, man, you got, you're got you not seriously expecting an answer from me. I, uh, oh, they'd I'm be ti- They'd be tied serious. for first place, <laughs> and I'd walk away with two trophies. <laughs> oh, your, how's that for an that's answer? That's a great answer. <laughs> okay, we've talked about Neil Young, Bruce Springsteen, Lou Reed... Gosh, it sounds like the making of rock and roll's Mount Rushmore. Let's bring in another great. Uh, this is in reference to your new solo record. Tell me about Dear Heartbreaker. Yeah, Tom Petty, one of my musical heroes. Way back in 77, I was uh, touring England, and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, who I had, wasn't aware of, became my opening act for five weeks. And I was stunned at what a great band they were. This is before Damn the Torpedoes hit. And probably one of the one of the last tours they were an opening act, but they came out and they were roaring, and it actually made me and my band, you know, kicked our butt a bit and kept us on our toes. But we both held our own, and I've been a fan ever since. Uh, my wife Amy, of twenty three years, is as big a fan as I, and we went up to Denver. We saw them at Red Rocks, which was amazing. It rained, it thundered. They sent the audience away. They pulled the band off stage, and we all got to go back out after the storm broke. And, you know, as always, it was an amazing show. I had a nice visit with the band who I've, you know, known through these decades. And uh, when we lost Tom, almost to the day, Amy and I would wake up and we'd have a cursing session about how enraged and sad we were that Tom Petty had died. And this went on for months. We were very just shook up. And uh, when I wrote this record, one day I started just in my own little head, a little verse to Tom, you know, because sometimes I went through this with the Beatles where you stop listening to the music, you're so upset John Lennon died, and then I'm like, what the hell is that, man? This is the greatest body of work ever recorded, and you go back to it. And I started doing that with Tom a bit, and I said, no, I've been through this, I'm not doing it again. I wrote a little four-line thing to Tom, I'm not backing down, your music. And every day, I didn't intend for it to be a song, it was just a little mantra to Tom's spirit, and another verse came, another verse came, and I kept writing them down, once I had five verses, I knew I had to share the song. It's just uh, dedicated to Tom and the Heartbreakers for all the great music they've given us. And the body of work is still here to inspire us. I listen to it a lot, even though it's just such a tragedy. We lost him so young. Still he's not backing down And the music lights our souls No, he's not Is there 
anyone you have not worked with that you'd like to? Well, you know, through the years, I've gotten to play with so many greats almost by accident. Uh, most of the people I'd like to play with are not here, like, you know, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, you know, Sam Cooke, people like that, uh, Etta James. Look, when I started 50 years ago when I was 17, 51 years ago now, I would have never been this greedy to think, you know, 51 years later, I'd be playing in all these great bands and have such a great career and get to play with so many people. Uh, I've been blessed to play with so many through the years, and there'll probably be some more surprises ahead, God willing. talk since we back when and how is life with your new love I hope she's something from above something happened yesterday I need to talk to you listening to Neil on this album Colorado it got me thinking about all these tracks I've been hearing in the last few years from incredible artists who are late in their careers. So there's this beautiful version of Both Sides Now that Joni Mitchell did with a symphony orchestra. I mean, that's probably... Amazing. Yeah. Yes. Petula Clark did this version of Downtown with her older voice, and it, it just takes on a haunting quality. You know, Bruce Springsteen has this film out, this kind of documentary concert that is an exploration of his life and it's him laid bare vocally. I think that Neil Young, who has always sounded authentic and warm and gentle in his singing, is even more charming now. Are you making room to celebrate how you sound later in your career? Yes, I think uh, in particular after 50 years now, long ago I... I used to, as a kid, I wanted to sound like Paul Rogers or Rod Stewart or Muddy Waters, and I kept trying to, you know, be gruff and hoarse, and I finally grew into the voice I have and realized, hey, I'm not that voice. Take what you've got and make the most of it. So I've I've long started just trying to embrace what God gave me, and this new record in particular, I, I did also sing it live in the room with the bass player and drummer, no isolation boost. We were just looking at each other, everything was leaking into each other. And I did enough rehearsing so where I could sing live in the room. And there's an immediacy that comes from, you know, and a confidence you should have after 50 years on the road to believe in yourself and do enough rehearsing so that when you're there with the groups, you can really shine. And, um, you know, Neil's an extreme version, uh, way back to after the gold rush and everything else of keeping things very immediate. In fact, when we did Tonight Tonight, one of the themes was we're going to do completely live. No one can fix a note. You're going to be singing and playing at the same time, and we don't want you to learn the songs too well. And that's how we approach that record. And it's a very unusual, dark, rough take on what Neil wanted to share. It's like, how is it when 
the musicians don't play it so many times. They have, here's my riff for the verse, here's my riff for the chorus. And they're just responding with an immediacy and a soulful emotion to each other, not really knowing what they're going to play and not being able to play it again the same way. And that's a beautiful, courageous thing that I think Neil's always striven for, strove for, whatever that correct word is. <laughs> Thanks for making all this happen again. Nils, thanks for being with us. Uh, good luck in becoming a better snowboarder. Yeah, thank you. And God bless all the citizenry of Colorado and uh, Telluride in particular for always welcoming me and my wife, Amy, and all the beautiful dogs and animals that would come visit us when we were walking the streets. And uh, we'll be back. Thank you. I know you ask all the same questions I do. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nils Lofgren, we spoke in October just before the release of Colorado from Neil Young and Crazy Horse. It was recorded at Studio in the Clouds near Telluride, where Lofgren and his family spend time. Michael Hughes produced that segment. It's a favorite of 2019. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. My